0: What's up, everyone? This is Anthony Pompliano. Most of you know me as Pomp. You're listening to the Pomp Podcast, simply the best podcast out there. Now let's kick this thing off. Kaj Larson is a former Navy SEAL, he's been a war correspondent at a number of different organizations, and he's now a co-founder of Guild Financial. In this conversation, we talk about everything from Navy SEAL training to the early days of Vice, what exactly his philanthropic work around water and environment protection looks like, and then of course, financial education and wealth building, and what exactly that means for veterans and those who support the military. I really enjoyed this conversation with Kaj, and I hope that you guys enjoy it as well. Once you listen to this episode, let us know on Twitter. What do you like? What do you not like? What did you agree with? And what did you disagree with? I hope that you guys enjoyed this episode with Kaj. Let's get into it. Anthony Pompliano runs Pomp Investments. All views of him and the guests on his podcast are
1: solely their opinions and do not reflect the opinions of Pomp Investments. You should not treat any opinion expressed by Pomp or his guests as a specific inducement to make a particular investment or follow a particular strategy, but only as an expression of his personal opinion. This podcast is for informational purposes only.
0: All right, guys. Bang, bang. I've got Kaj here with me. Uh, I thought a great place to start Navy SEAL training. Uh, is one of the toughest military schools that someone can go through. Uh, it's brutal. I think over the last couple of years, more and more SEALs have started to talk about their experiences. People have seen folks like David Goggins or Jacko Wilnick and, and some of these individuals become very popular in the civilian world. Uh, but there's a lot of change going on. How do you think about your experience training and uh, the things that you went through? Would that be cool today? Would they, would they still do those same things or has it changed? Well, it's interesting. It's funny. You just brought up a couple of my friends. You
1: know, the SEAL community is is tight-knit community. Jocko was my first jiu-jitsu instructor. And one of the... best things about Jocko is like there's no persona there's no artifice there like with Jocko it's like that old school computer language wissy what you see is what you get (laughs) that is Jocko like unadulterated um and I was I was sort of reared literally he was my first jujitsu coach he was slightly he's a slightly senior officer to me in the SEAL team so I was a very junior junior officer and he was a junior officer at the same time so we're of that same generation um and you know like I like to think I'm, you know, slightly more refined. You know, Jocko can be pretty paleolithic at times. Uh, but, yeah, in, increasingly, like, I was in SEAL training, BUDS, basic underwater demolition SEAL training on 9-11. On, wow. Yeah, I was in first phase of BUDS. I just completed a two-mile ocean swim. Uh, and I remember that day very distinctly because – Prior to that, you could kind of call the SEAL teams maybe like a shoot-dive-jump club, right? It was a good time, right? Yeah, yeah. And people, you know, I, I didn't know much about SEALs when when I went in. We weren't high-profile in the media the way we are today. Uh, but, like, you know, pejoratively, you could say, like, oh, those guys, they're just like this, like, small unit, like, doing their thing. It wasn't as operational. Obviously, September
0: 11th changed ev- all of that for both the SEAL community and for myself. So you're in the water 9/11 happens and you get out and they're just like, hey guys, somebody just flew a uh, plane into the tower. Like, how do they tell you? Yeah, we were we were changing out in mm-hmm. you know you're doing this like quick
1: where you get rid of your rubber fins and you're taking off your wetsuit and stripping down and you're always rushed. And then uh, those those two mile ocean swims in the morning. Right after that, you run to the chow hall. So they you start at like 5 a.m. or something, and by the time you finish, you're running over trying to make it to the chow hall with your class before they closed. It's another mile and a half run mm-hmm. to get over to the chow hall. Uh, and as we were changing out, you could sort of hear whisper rumors. There's all these – sort of besides the instructors, peripheral personnel who were like, you know, helping maintain medical personnel and stuff like that. Somebody was saying, like, oh, a plane hit the World Trade Center and all this stuff. So as we were running over to the chow hall, that rumor was kind of circulating. through. At this point, the class mm-hmm. is still very large, you know, 200 plus guys, mm-hmm. right? My class started with 246 guys. We graduated 26 originals. So we were still this big— massive raging horde at this point running over to the chow hall on the other side of the amphibious space. And uh, people were sort of saying, like, a plane hit the tower. I candidly thought that it might have been a ruse of the instructors, because they're always doing things that fuck with you, right? And they're always playing these little fuck-fuck games. And so I was like, oh, this is another one of their games. And then we got over to the chow hall, and there was TVs in the chow hall, because that's where the regular naval personnel eat as well. So there was... TV. It's
0: not as austere. The people who didn't go on the two-mile swim, a right. mile and a half run to get there. <laughs> yeah, they're just waking up, getting their
1: coffee. You know, yeah, we call it the shoe navy, right? Uh, as opposed to the boot navy. Uh, so, and then on the TV screens, um, we saw the images, yep. right? And then I knew that this was real, partially because, like, the instructors, frankly, aren't that sophisticated. They could never pull off this, right? So we come back from the Chow Hall. It's very obvious that something catastrophic has happened, and the instructors. To their credit, they had an incredibly clairvoyant, clear sense of what was going on, and they said, gentlemen, we're going to war, Mm -hmm. and we're going to beat you until those of you who don't want to be here quit. Mm
0: -hmm. And that's
1: what they did. And that was Mm -hmm. a horrific day for us, just a physically grueling day. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, for us, you're a BUD student. There's, like, lots going on. It's hard to think through the strategic implications of what had happened. But for these guys, the instructors who – their BUDS assignment is just a rotation, just come from an operational SEAL team, uh, they knew really quickly what it meant. And so they had an even more clarified sense of mission and purpose that day yep. because they knew that guys, us, the guys in the class, the students, like we were going to rotate. If we graduated, we were going to be in platoons fighting right alongside those instructors. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, they beat the hell out of us. A bunch of people quit, and uh,
0: and that's that was my— did they, entrance change, to the teams. did they change the training at all in terms of it, trying to accelerate folks or was this a point where uh, a lot of the units still had enough people where if they were sent out, then, hey, we're, we're good. We don't need to actually change training, accelerate the graduation of people or anything like that? One of the things that's interesting
1: about the SEAL selection, as you mentioned, is generally considered you know some of the hardest military special operations selection mm-hmm. in the world – is no matter how big they open the funnel mm-hmm. at the top, they really pretty much seem to get the same number. Twenty six people the, graduate right, exactly. <laughs> it, like it's remarkable how unchanged and how similar it's been mm-hmm. through since the creation of the, the SEAL Team since President Kennedy created the SEAL teams back in 1961.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It's crazy to me also, I think, um, how celebratized uh, the SEAL teams have gotten. And uh, the few that I know, they are like, hey, that's like a weird thing. That's not how this was supposed to to happen. But it makes sense that uh, whether it's Hollywood, the media, whoever, like – What better story than, like, oh, these guys are swimming, you know, uh, in the dark of night and showing up with guns and, like, like it's a story that they want to tell, but it is very uh, in contrast, I think, to a lot of the ethos of the unit, right?
1: Yeah, I mean, this is a little bit seal inside baseball, but you know when i entered the seal teams you know i was i was playing water polo at the naval academy i look back at my water polo team from the naval academy and something like of the 21 of us like 14 of us went naval special warfare which wow. is the seal team so it was a a feeder a pipeline program that Prior to that, I had never really even heard of Navy SEALs. You know, like, back back when I, back in the old days, right, (laughs) it was all Chuck Norris Delta Force. Everybody was talking about Delta Force, Delta Force, right? Now Delta Force is, like, sort of, like, you know, smirking at us, like, oh, we're the real quiet professionals now, and you guys are these, like, you know, Hollywood hair gel guys, right? Um, I, I think, like, many corporate institutions, there was this inflection point in 2011, right, where we went from having an ethos of what we called the quiet professional, and then we had to transition to this very public-facing role, right? Mm -hmm. The idea that we were going to continue to remain the quiet professionals um, and out of the spotlight after bin Laden, arguably the single most important mission operations since World War II. Mm-hmm. Um, f- to me, that was untenable, yeah. right? Like we were very firmly in the public spotlight. And like any organization, we've had sort of some real growing pains with going from a a shadowed organization into one that's directly in the spotlight. And I think we're still going through that today.
0: When you see the bin Laden uh, raid and and the killing of bin Laden, how much of the public's interest, like obviously it's bin Laden, right? So there's a lot of people who cared about it. Uh, But the story of how it happened, the helicopter goes down and kind of all these things that really, I think, put a light onto, oh, these are these professionals who are prepared for any situation. And uh, most people, if they were just sent to do something like this and the helicopter went down, they'd like call their boss and be like, hey, what do we do? (laughs) Right. Uh, But the SEALs got the job done and were able to get themselves out. No one was killed uh, uh, from the American side, like all these things. How much of the story shined a light on it on top of it being Bin Laden himself? I think what it exposed and look, I'll the better dude to talk about this
1: is my friend Rob O'Neill. I'll introduce yeah. you guys. You guys are going to love each other. Great dude. Um, and you know Rob talks about this I- extensively. You know from an operational perspective, I-, I think part of the reason that, besides just like you s- implied that it wasn't just that it was Bin Laden, right? Mm-hmm. It was that pulling this off in Pakistan, which is arguably one of the most dangerous countries in the world, right? It's a nuclear armed nation um, that we've had a very complex relationship with throughout the conflict in Afghanistan. Pulling that off, despite all of the obstacles, right, um, is – is impressive, right? Mm -hmm. It was, that's textbook, like we had spent a decade sharpening the knife, preparing for that kind of operation, but it all goes back to what happens in SEAL training, Mm -hmm. in BUDS, right? The ethos is you are taught to improvise, to adapt, to overcome, and to accomplish the mission, Mm -hmm. like regardless of what obstacles are thrown in your face. SEAL training is really about like one thing. Mm -hmm. It's about who's gonna, it's about figuring out Who's gonna ring that bell, right? Mm-hmm. We say everybody wants to be a frogman on a sunny day, right? Like, yeah, who wants to be a frogman when you're cold, you're wet, you're tired, mm-hmm. um, you're hurting, right? That's what buds is. It's like there's all these like tricks and tips, and like there's uh, been some some high-profile media articles as of late mm-hmm. about what's happening um, in seal training, uh, but you can really boil it down to its essence: is somebody gonna ring that bell or not? Yeah,
0: well, What is- – Again, I've never gone through Navy SEAL training. Uh, uh, I went through basic training on the army side and in some of those schools. Uh, and they're tough, but as a 17-18 year old kid, you know, if you're half athletic and like not an idiot and don't quit, like you'll be fine. Um but when I read the articles about the SEAL training, on one side I'm like, okay, they write it in such a way where it's like are, are we killing the seals, right? You know, like, like they write it as if it's literally the the worst thing in the world. On the other side, it's like, hey, these are the people that we're going to send to go fight our enemies on the battlefield like probably want pretty tough people right we want them skilled we want them to have some of this training how do you think through the critiques but also having gone through the experience of like well maybe some of this is like by design or, or actually is helpful in, in sharpening the tools that the nation uses in war yeah look i i i think you
1: encapsulated the dichotomy perfectly mm-hmm. there right that As of late, there's been a lot of attention in Spotlight. There was just a high-profile New York Times article that came out sort of critiquing Mm -hmm. SEAL training. Um, And when I read it, I thought to myself, wow, this is a real piece of shit, right? And like I actually hold the New York Times in incredibly high esteem. Like Mm -hmm. I I come from – journalism world right Mm -hmm. i spent a a tremendous amount of time in my civilian career as a conflict zone correspondent right um the new york times has always been sort of the gold standard for Mm -hmm. for journalism in a lot of ways um and and i read this front page article about seal training and drug use and culture of drug abuse and i was like oh this is written by somebody who fundamentally doesn't understand what's happening mm-hmm. inside the wall. And and uh, the, the root of that critique was there, there was a death and seal training about six months ago. The article mm-hmm. just came out a month ago. But there was a, a death and seal training, a guy, I, I feel bad butchering his name. I think it's Kyle Mullen mm-hmm. uh, was his name. He uh, played football at Yale, came over to Bud's. Um, went through training and
0: died post-Hell Week, right? Um, and, there was, it, and, and I think key pieces he made it through Hell Week and then yeah. like a couple of days after. Y-
1: yeah, so, so. Y- you secure Hell Week on like a Friday. He was in the barracks that night and uh, he – th- I think it was Sipe. It's, it's sort of unclear like the – you know, but essentially like he died as a result of injuries sustained in Hell mm-hmm. Week, right? Super tragic Uh, And I feel for his family tremendously. Like um, his mom's been on a a big crusade to hold people accountable. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I think that that is understandable uh, and just, right? And I think certainly that there was mistakes made. There's a a med check process, right? I remember when I finished Hell Week, you know, you basically spend two days in bed recovering, peeing in Gatorade bottles because you can't get up to go to the bathroom. Mm -hmm. Um, But there are supposed to be people who are coming around and sort of checking and doing wellness checks on you. And I think some part of that process and system failed in the six months since that has happened i have been able to to talk to the naval special warfare center and i've been able to observe that they have fixed the they've plugged those holes Mm -hmm. right and so total mistake total tragic but the indictment of the overall training process troubles me and Mm -hmm. the reason it does is um because when you look at it in in aggregate in grand total uh there's been 11 deaths throughout the course of the SEAL history in training, right? Really? hmm And 11 is a tragic number, mm-hmm. right? But 11 over since 1961, mm-hmm. right, over the course of, you know, 50, 60-plus odd years, mm-hmm. almost 70 years of training, uh, is not a staggering number to yeah. me, you know, a little over one a decade, mm-hmm. right? Um, and this
0: so- is with how many— approximate uh classes are going through
1: buds a year well this these are gross approximations sometimes there's four classes sometimes there's five classes right but say a thousand people a year exactly say a thousand people a year going through training so Mm -hmm. um and like look no death no death no loss is desired or Mm -hmm. even acceptable and and buds is actually a pretty safe environment right Mm -hmm. and they do considering the intensity and the risk Of the training, I actually think they do. And I am not like an apologist for the SEAL community. I would be the first to sort of, you know, critique where we can do better. And like that med check failure is certainly a place that could be done better. But when I really scale back and look at the 50,000 foot view, it it comes down to this for me you're asking these men, and it's all men in SEAL training, to do superhuman tasks. Mm -hmm. And it's very difficult then to hold them to human standards if you're trying to do that, right? We want them to perform impossible missions, and in order to do that, we have to test their mettle. And we have to test their mettle in the most extreme close-to-combat circumstances we can, Mm -hmm. and that's the best we can do at BUDS. And the challenge for the instructors and for the SEAL community is to walk that right up – to the line mm-hmm. to simulate as close as we can, the experience of, of being in combat and the rigors and stress of combat uh, while obviously trying to keep people safe. And uh, it's sad, but to me, understandable that uh, in this in this one domain that occasionally there are accidents, occasionally there are mistakes. Um, and I I do think that there are places in the US military in our national defense where we need those units, mm-hmm. we need units that are capable of doing the hardest, dare I say, close to impossible mm-hmm. missions. Um, and in order to to, as you said, keep the knife that sharp, you really you have to push the envelope in yeah. training. I think you see this in other communities too. Look at uh, test pilot school at Edwards Air Force Base, right? Every one of those wives if you go back and read like great books like the right stuff written by Tom Wolfe about the early days of test pilot school, I was just actually out at Edwards talking to uh, a test pilot family and they live with this every day. They know those guys are out there in punching holes in the sky on the edge of the envelope in order to figure out like You
0: know, to keep the
1: U.S. military as the tip of the spear. Um, So I I think overall, considering how extraordinarily dangerous uh, SEAL training is, they actually
0: do a decent job. Is that fair? I I think it's 100 percent fair. And. and again, from an outsider's view, but understanding uh, of the military, what I always try to do is try to draw a line maybe from, okay, so this training that is very intense. I mean, we're literally talking about, uh, there are people who are passing out in the water, being revived, going right back in the water. Like that's not normal. Right. Yeah. Uh, it's kind of like Elon Musk is like, uh, I'm trying to go to Mars. Did you think I'd be normal? Yeah. Right? <laughs> like, right. like I'm trying to do something as wild as so do you think I'd be normal? Uh, but if you draw a line to, uh, Mark's Littrell story, Right and, and kind of that mission and, and I think it's been uh, um you know really blasted out into the media with the movie and all the stuff it's like hold on a second we're gonna ask the people who are in that training to go and be one of the four guys who are gonna fight on this mountain and one of the four is literally gonna be crawling on his hands and knees with a broken back and, and like you go through it and you're like hey maybe we actually owe these people the 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 uh, ability to be prepared in these situations, right? Like, like to some degree- it's Yeah, almost, Flips the
1: narrative. Yeah. yeah. It, it's
0: yeah. like, are we really going to ask these individuals to go and not give them our best training?
1: Yeah. Nailed it 100% on the head. And, you know, life is a strange loop full circle. Marcus's identical twin brother, Morgan, mm-hmm. was my swim buddy that morning wow. on wow. September 11th. Uh, wow. So really, um, you know, our community is small, so it's, yeah. you know, not surprising. Uh, but, you know, look, I'll say one more thing to to bash on that. That shitty New York Times article, right? And why they fundamentally misunderstand the culture that you and I mm-hmm. come from is the the. And maybe this is more a comment on the media than than the article in particular. But I looked at that that headline, and it said, you know, I have culture of cheating and drug abuse within SEAL training, mm-hmm. right? Uh, and they cited like the the presence of steroids mm-hmm. in, uh, like, you know, maybe. You know, some of the people who've had medical issues and stuff, it's because they're using steroids and that they got some anonymous quotes or some quotes about people using, you know, steroids in in SEAL training and whatnot. Um, Like, look, I'm here to tell you, like, you know, like a natural bodybuilder. I didn't use steroids in SEAL training. I performed quite well. Uh, Like only an outsider – would make that mistake mm-hmm. of thinking that steroids are an advantage in SEAL mm-hmm. training. Because I think from the outside, you think that these are physical evolutions mm-hmm. and they're not, mm-hmm. right? The whole purpose of SEAL training, mm-hmm. to see if you'll ring that bell, is to test your grit, your mental fortitude, your mental yeah. toughness. It's a mental evolution, right? And steroids aren't gonna help you. They might, maybe if you had Lance Armstrong's, you know, doping guy, yeah. give you some small performance advantage, but. In general, like, it's not physical, it's mental. We, we and that's found, the fundamental mistake. We haven't found the drug that makes you mentally tough yet. <laughs> right, and exactly. And that's why, like, that that article was laughable. And so when I read a headline about, you know, um, about, you know, culture of drug abuse, mm-hmm. I was like, oh, no, no, you fundamentally don't get it. You know, headlines like that, and I find this to be a problem sort of writ large in the media landscape these days, is that the institution, and it's not their fault— They are incentivized for salaciousness and not for truth.
0: Yeah, yeah. I I forget the exact— Numbers, but one of the most interesting stats to me, I think it's across all special operations, the average uh, height and weight, it's like 5'11, 180, or 190, right? And I think people, because of the media uh, and movies and things like that, they think everyone's 6'4, 250 pounds, and it'll rip your head off. Yeah. Like, yes, they can kill you, but it it is uh, uh, to some degree, uh, you need people who are mentally tough and you need people who are versatile. It's not just about who's got the biggest muscles as much as it is who can solve problems, who can do some of these different things. And I think that that gets lost a lot because. It sounds great. Like, oh, Navy SEALs are all using steroids. And, you know, of course they are.
1: <laughs> totally,
0: right? And not that... There aren't steroids. Of
1: course mm-hmm. there are. But when we're trying to to paint an accurate picture mm-hmm. of an overall community, the average age of a soft Special Operations Forces operator is 34 years old with two children, mm-hmm. right? It takes a decade to develop the skills of jumping, diving, shooting mm-hmm. in order to conduct missions like Neptune Spear or, mm-hmm. or Red Wings or any of these like high profile missions that you read about or more importantly, the ones you don't read
0: about. Yeah. When, uh, when you think of all of the missions that, uh, folks are aware of, is there one that you look at and you're like, that was some crazy shit. Like whenever you talk to somebody who's trained for something, who's kind of in a club, whether it's in business, whether it's in the military, uh, sports, whatever, most of the things I think outsiders are impressed by people like, eh, it's cool. But like the insiders aren't impressed, but was there one where you guys were all like, yo. That was fucking cool. Like, 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 I can't believe they pulled that off. Yeah. Well, there's a hundred that I can talk
1: about and a hundred that I can't, right? <laughs> uh, but I'll tell you something that, that stands out in my mind that's in the public domain mm-hmm. is one that was sort of portrayed as a failure. But I think if we... We look at it from a a different perspective or a different lens, like imagine what happened. So there was an operation that went down to capture a high-profile, a high-value target in Somalia. Mm -hmm. So this was a terrorist leader, uh, if my memory serves me correct, associated with Al-Shabaab, which is one of the terrorist organizations that operates out of Somalia. Um, It was on a beach north of Mogadishu. He was in a safe house. Um, The the SEAL operational unit uh, inserted VIA water, which is our maritime Time domain specialty, inserted via water um, in the early hours of the morning, pre-dawn, and uh got in a huge firefight with mm-hmm. the guards there. You know, thousands and thousands of rounds of ammunition dumped in both directions. Um the the GFC, the ground force commander, uh made the decision to tactically withdraw mm-hmm. back to the water. Um, like any firefight, it's messy, right? It's a few magazines, a few radios get dropped in, you know, in in the middle of this. Several. You guys litter.
0: Uh, Navy seals litter. <laughs> <A> thousand, <laughs> thousand bucks.
1: A thousand bucks. Oh my god! Okay. I mean, <laughs> in, in, in general, we try and sanitize the beach, but you know, and so you know, there was like. Shabab or the, the, the Somali offshoot group, you know, they posted some pictures like, oh, these guys, you know, we got in this big firefight and we, here's the evidence, here's their radio. And here's, you know, Mm -hmm. the magazines that, that got left behind or whatever. And, you know, I guess sort of in terms of mission objective, the, the mission was a failure, right? They Mm -hmm. failed to capture that high value Mm -hmm. target. Right. And so those are them, the facts, right? That's what happened, right? Like they didn't complete the mission objective. Right. But, Nobody, nobody was killed, right? Mm-hmm. And if you think about what really happened, uh, I spent a lot of time in Somalia, Mogadishu. Um, Somalis in general are actually pretty fearful of the water. They don't swim very well, right? Mm-hmm. There's some fishermen and stuff who are comfortable, but even like some of the Somali pirates that we rolled up, like didn't know how to swim. So wow. here you have like a senior terrorist leader at his beach house in Somalia, right? And in the middle of the night, you know, a SEAL commando unit Scuba's in, inserts from the ocean, the dark ocean, shoots up your entire house, kills, you know, kills so many of your security guards. There's an hour long firefight raging, and then poof, they retreat. Back into the water in the middle of the night. What's the psychological effect of that operation? Like, yes, on its face, mission failure. Right. This guy knows that we can reach out and touch him, sort of anywhere. So to probably me, that's real interesting. Be- hey, you probably don't stay at your
0: beach house that much. Exactly. That.
1: Right. <laughs> right. And so those are those are the kind of things that are happening on a mm-hmm. consistent basis. And and I think it really uh, it really speaks to the proficiency and the capability of of the force.
0: Yeah. It it, it um it's so interesting because it's a craft. Right, like, like this whole idea of you know shoot, move, communicate, but also uh, when you add in the water, when you add in jumping, and and, and all these things, um, I don't think people actually understand how many hours go into it as well. <laughs> like uh, uh, there's a um, I think it was a TV show uh called The Unit. I don't know oh, if you right. ever saw this. Yeah. And, and in one of the scenes, uh somebody sent it to me. And, and the guy, I guess, ha- he was having trouble during training and shooting. And so he went out on a weekend and he's just at the range. He's just shooting and he's shooting and he's shooting. And he shoots so much that he's like tearing up his hand. So he basically just wraps a cloth around it. He's still shooting, he's still shooting, he's still shooting, he's still shooting. And rather than being like, is this like what the military is like? I'm like, well, hold on. There's a very big difference between like special operations and regular military. But like that is something that I think people they associate with sports. Like, oh, you hear a story of Kobe Bryant in the gym at four o'clock in the morning or whatever. But to be able to do what you just described and insert into the water, swim for miles, go up onto a beach, get in a firefight, and then disappear... It, yeah, that's not luck. That's not, Hey, we just woke up this morning and decided we were going to be yeah. good at this. It's right? not the first time you tried that out. <laughs> yeah. You and, had some reps. There. Yeah. And, and and the reps probably were in situations where if you messed up, you didn't get killed. Right. Right. Like I think that's the other piece is the back finality. to the training piece. Right. Yeah.
1: Right. You, yeah. You don't
0: simulate that in the pool. Mm-hmm. Right. Right. When when you think of the training, uh, you went on after the SEALs to do a lot of stuff uh, in the, I'll I'll call it the media, just overarching, but uh, there was special investigations. There's a lot of war correspondent work. Um, You did a couple of different organizations. Talk a little bit as to like, were you just addicted to it? Like, hey, send me to the craziest places. Uh, Was it like, Let's look around the room who okay, well, like you have the highest probability of coming back, so you're going, whether you like it or not. Like, how do those conversations happen when you first get started? Yeah, well, you know, I accidentally fell into the media
1: mm-hmm. in my in my post SEAL career. Um, and interestingly enough, this is in my post active duty career, but I was able to continue to stay in the reserves and continue to serve while I was doing war corresponding and while I was doing my my work in media. I like to say, like, I was a SEAL in the media before it was cool to be a SEAL in the media, <laughs> right? Uh, <laughs> I'm sure all of
0: your friends love that. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah,
1: exactly. So, you know, you're welcome Goggins and Jocko for me paving the way for this opportunity. Uh, no, it, um, so when I transitioned off active duty, I actually ended up going to graduate school and studying public policy and, and IR. Um, and when I was in graduate school, you know, we were discussing like all of these issues in this like the lofty tower, the lofty ivory tower of academia, right? Um, But it was, it was sort of abstract, right? And it was very sort of classroom oriented, even though my professors were extraordinary, had like lots of real world experience. There was this sort of insular bubble nature to the kind mm-hmm. of conversations. Uh, and I had been a real world practitioner of it um, downrange. And I, I really thought, it was important from a mission perspective to be able to show people some of the experiences that I had downrange. And so that was people the catalyst
0: for media for me. They, they didn't get it. They uh, they didn't want to understand what was happening. Like, what was your experience when you were talking to these and how receptive were they to some of your experiences? So uh,
1: this great professor in grad school who told this – this story uh, about a, a national conference of journalists, and he's this is an he, this is a guy who wrote the definitive history of the New York Times, mm-hmm. an esteemed Harvard professor. He actually ran the Shorenstein Center at Harvard, which was for press politics and public policy. Uh, and he told this story that he goes to this national journalism conference every year, and every year since you know 1955, I mean, he's you know he's pretty pretty geriatric at the point that he was my <laughs> professor but really sharp like sharp as attack and you know he was he was long in in the tooth and and he said when they first started this convention they always start by parading the flag and the the service flags down the middle of of the aisle and they ask anybody who had served to please stand up and in the 50s uh you know to pay respects and and to honor the flag right the service flags as they came down army navy marine corps Um, and you know in 19 in the 50s and the 60s when he went to these conventions and this happened basically every single journalist in the room stood up because they had all served in World War II because mm-hmm. the entire nation had been mobilized. And he watched like through Vietnam and through – and then he said, you know, in, in 2005, the the year that I entered Harvard, uh, he told me that that year he had gone to the convention. They had asked every journalist in the room uh, who had served in the military to stand up and nobody stood up. Wow. So you had this giant disconnect between um, – People who sort of understood war at a visceral level mm-hmm. and the people who were telling the American public mm-hmm. about war. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so for and me. One lifetime.
0: In, in one lifetime, right? A, a in one switch. lifetime,
1: he watched the evolution, and uh, and and I think that was true. It's it's less true now. You have more and more veterans like ourselves. Right? You're, you have this great podcast. Like you have more of us who are sort of talking about our experiences and helping shape the national narrative and understanding mm-hmm. about conflict and and issues of the day. Um, but in in two thousand five. Uh, You know, when I got off active duty before I transitioned to the reserves, uh, it just wasn't the case. There really weren't a lot of veterans working in the institution of media. Mm -hmm. And, you know, this is a – it's a bigger problem than just in media or it's a bigger issue than just media. There was a book that was written that year called AWOL, uh, American Elites Unexcused Absence from the Military. Wow. And he talked about, you know, the graduating class of 1942 at Harvard, um, 100% of eligible males went and joined the military. Yeah. Because it was World War II, middle mm-hmm. of World War II. And then he, you know, fast forward to the year he wrote the book. I can't remember, 2004, 2003. We were actually— still in the middle of war yeah. right two wars iraq and afghanistan uh, but like not a single member of the graduating
0: class mm-hmm. of harvard that year had entered This episode is brought to you by Unstoppable Domains. They've partnered with Blockchain.com to create NFT domain names ending in .blockchain. It's the perfect ending to show that you're a believer in a decentralized future. The Blockchain.com community can join a short waitlist to get one for free at blockchain.com slash waitlist slash blockchain domain. Free NFT domains provide all the benefits of premium Unstoppable Domains, including fee-free lifelong ownership. If you don't have a blockchain.com wallet, no worries. There's new free domains available to everyone. Either join the waitlist for a free blockchain.com domain or visit unstoppabledomains.com to buy your domain today, starting as low as $5. Unstoppabledomains.com. This episode is brought to you by Arculus. Arculus is the next generation crypto and NFT cold storage wallet that combines one of the world's strongest security protocols with the easiest to use form factor and app. They have three factor authentication and you can use your PIN and Arculus keycard along with biometrics. They don't compromise your holdings by requiring a USB port, charging or browser connections. With Arculus, you're protected from hackers and institutions freezing your access. Learn more today and buy it now at GetArculus.com. You can use promo code POMP to save 15%. GetArculus.com, use promo code POMP. And remember, with Arculus, it's your keys, your crypto. The The reverse is actually fascinating as well. I can't remember if it's uh, maybe in the- 60s, 70s, I'm going to get the the uh, time frame uh, incorrect, but uh, at one point, I think it was the Fortune 500, 87% of the CEOs were military veterans. Yes. And when they went and looked now, it, it's not zero, but it was significantly less. It was like 10% or something. And uh, the paper that I read was basically making the argument, like, don't be surprised. They weren't predicting it as much as just like, uh, because we have sent so many for 20 years in Iraq and Afghanistan, you're going to then see these military veterans rise up in, in these organizations the difference was 100% right was going in in the uh, in the 40s uh and now it's like 1% of the american population is engaged and and so you know there's pluses and minuses to it in some ways uh wow how amazing is it that only 1% of our population has to go and fight and everyone else can enjoy you know the greatness of america uh, but at the same time like it is fascinating how different it is now It is. It is a fundamental sea change. Um, and look, I'm, I'm not a
1: veteranophile, right? Mm -hmm. I don't think that like, just because you served in the military, you are going to be an extraordinary Mm -hmm. CEO, um, or an extraordinary journalist or, or anything, right? We know that you and I know all too well how non-homogenous the military population and the veteran population is. Um, but I do think that there is something to be said for that sort of cadre experience Mm -hmm. of experience. I do think that there's something to be said um, for you know what is what is this you probably know this better like you know what is being a veteran? It's like writing a blank check for up and to the value of your life to the United States government, uh-huh. right like uh, there is something that is important in the national discourse and in the national leadership of having worn the cloth of the country. And I think we as the veteran community do add value, especially now in these like turbulent times Mm -hmm. that we're like highly partisan times that Mm -hmm. we're living in and stuff. I think actually sort of the value of uniformed service Mm -hmm. is, is even elevated
0: right Mm now. Yeah. it, It is, um, very much, uh, if we go back to the early 2000s, right? Uh, what's the easiest way to get rid of all the partisanship? It's like there's some external threat. And if you go back and and uh, people have seen the clip, but I think it's uh, George Bush is running out to do the first pitch at the New York Yankees game. I don't care if you're white, black, brown, green, purple, if you're a Republican Democrat or you're you know some fucking weird thing that no one actually knows about, you were an American on that day. And that sounds idealistic, but that was only 20 years ago. Right right like, like like that was not uh, uh, that long ago and um you know, there's people now who, if you think about it, are like 18 to 22 that like literally weren't born yet. <laughs> right? Like I, I recently, uh, uh, we, we, were working with somebody and uh, we needed a date of birth or something. And he told me that it was 2002. And I like, I was like, Oh shit, I got to take a lap. <laughs> right. Cause like you just forget, but like, uh, so yes, yeah, some portion of people on social media and stuff like this, like literally just don't remember that stuff. Um, but I do think that it is possible. And Obviously, we'd like to have more uh, 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 kind of cohesion without having to have the external threat, but that's just how nature has always worked, right, is the external threat actually brings people
1: together. Yeah, I think about, you know, at a micro level, I always think about combat. Um, this is going to be platitudinal in some ways, but I combat, you know, is this thing that for me, it's always had this like clarifying Mm -hmm. effect right it's not like you go to combat and like you go to war and then you have some grand epiphany like oh life is so sweet i'm gonna enjoy every moment i'm never gonna argue i'm a hindu cow i'm a zen buddhist (laughs) monk now coming back from war like it's certainly not like that and obviously with like the trauma that some people experience it's tremendously not like that um but for me like war has never had this like grand epiphany effect what it's had this effect of is like racking an aperture like bringing things into sharper focus Mm -hmm. so when i'm home and i i get to like you know take a surfer swim in the ocean right like you know or when i have like a good meal like things are like slightly incrementally sweeter Mm -hmm. they're like they taste better they feel better because i've had this this clarifying fact effect and you know i hope that that idea is scalable Mm -hmm. right that you know whatever conflict is happening out there in the world for our, our nation. Like it does bring some clarity and focus to like our, our national discourse and our national culture of like the things that matter, like the, the things that, you know, the truth is like, even in this highly partisan times, and we've been through these eras in history before, um, we have much more in common Mm -hmm. than we are different. Yeah. And the military helps teach that, which is part of the value of uniform
0: service. Yeah. It it also, um, I, I always say that, uh, it's a reminder daily, like in some weird morbid way that like, Hey, unfortunately nobody gets out alive. And so like, enjoy it. Right. To some degree is like basically what you're saying. Totally. And, and, uh, I think that people who don't have that experience, they're like, Oh, these guys are fucking weirdos. Right. (laughs) Whatever. But, there is this element of, uh, uh, yes, there is the uh, portion of the military who does have the traumatic experiences. But there's also a portion of the military who they're much happier people. They enjoy things. They let things go that maybe otherwise they wouldn't if, if they hadn't had the experience. And so it's like very fascinating uh, difference of response. And a lot of it has to do with the experience that they have in the military.
1: To- totally, totally. It, I mean it is like – look, this is – this idea is an anthema to really say at a, a big level, but I know Stan McChrystal's a big supporter mm-hmm. of it. Um, I I have always been a supporter of national service mm-hmm. to some degree, right? And even as like a unity mm-hmm. principle and a unifying factor. What would it look like?
0: Like everyone goes in the military, or could it be no anything? They,
1: Anything that could be national service, right? And, you know, with one stroke of the pen in, you know, 1962, President Kennedy created both the SEAL teams and the Peace Corps, which mm-hmm. are these two disparate elements of national power, right? Yeah. <laughs> I always, like, thought, like, oh, you know, in my 60s, I'll, like, join the Peace Corps. Then I'll have, like, completed yeah. week, right? <laughs> uh, the
0: loop uh, right? Uh, so, you know. In some way, they both are intended to keep the peace. Just they take different tacks. That's
1: right. And in some <laughs> ways, and there are parts of the world where the only – Americans that people might know are either soldiers or Peace Corps volunteers mm-hmm. right so that's that's how the how extremely important that kind of ambassadorship is but yeah look I think it would basically look like no you can go into any of these uniformed services it would look much like the military if you want to go right out of high schools because some people are not prepared mm-hmm. for a college right you know this would be your sort of gap service year. You could go into the Peace Corps. You could go into Teach for America, right? You could go into the military and you would be like enlisted cadre in that organization, right? Or if you went to college and deferred your national service until post-college, then you would be as part of this kind of like junior officer leadership cadre. So we would model the other service organizations or service institutions on that sort of, like, military pipeline. Mm-hmm. Um, and everybody would serve, and, you know, uh, college would be semi-paid for or whatever, right? Yeah. I haven't haven't done the math, you know, but, like, right now, like, There's
0: a path to it making make sense.
1: Yeah, yeah, and especially in these polarizing
0: times, yeah. right? Um, what about the media? Like, well, you keep mentioning polarized times, and I think people think of, like, oh, my neighbor, like, what are their politics? Yeah. But yeah the media has like a very unique um, perspective, but also role. Like you get to see so many different news stories, right? And and you specifically went to many of the most dangerous places in the world. Uh, You used to go with a rifle. Now you're going with a camera, which is like, you know, in some ways crazier than going with the rifle. (laughs) Um, How did you think about that as you started to get deeper and deeper into working with the media, telling some of these stories?
1: Well, I think in the beginning, I had a sort of, semi naive mm-hmm. sort of non corporate approach to media. I had had these experiences overseas. I thought they were on the bleeding edge of some of the most important issues, both nationally mm-hmm. and both domestically and internationally. Um, and I I felt like it was part of my continued legacy and service mm-hmm. to have those kind of conversations and to 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 show sort of what was happening. Mm-hmm. To the American public, right? Mm -hmm. Um, You know, so I was the first Western journalist in Mogadishu in more than a decade. I was the first person to have myself waterboarded on TV, you know. I was in Afghanistan um, in – 2005, doing a documentary series, Um, all of those things kind of the common thread, common DNA was I thought these are important issues and like these are the topics that Americans should be most informed on as -hmm. as we're having national conversations Mm -hmm. about what to do, whether it's is waterboarding torture, should we continue the war in Afghanistan, Um, should we, you know, be paying more attention to what's happening in places in East Africa And West Africa. So that was really the genesis. It was mission driven Mm -hmm. in the beginning, my media career. Uh, As I became more sophisticated and learned more about the institution, like I really started to understand the sort of corporate side of media. Um, And my, you know, the brief trajectory of my media career is, is I started at a startup called Current TV. Al Gore. Al Gore's TV Network, yeah. (laughs) Created the internet and current (laughs) TV. (laughs) Uncle Al. (laughs) Uncle Al was 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 pioneering. Um and uh so and and that was kind of like a short form TV program. Uh, ahead of its time, nonlinear cable programming format. Um, and I went from I was then poached by CNN, and I was correspondent for their special investigations and documentary unit. I was uh, ingloriously fired from CNN when they cut the entire department. Uh, <laughs> Tell us the story. <laughs> you no, know, it was it's it's a really weird story, and I'll just say CNN's a different organization now under different leadership. <laughs> but basically, I was I was uh, I had been mobilized out of the reserves, out of my reserve. Unit and mm-hmm. I was in West Africa um, in uniform in the middle of the jungle in Liberia, actually, and I got a call from like my boss at CNN, and uh, he said, "Hey, they've they've cut the." special investigations and documentary unit, like you're under contract. Um, you can come back and go cover like, you know, fires in LA or whatever. But like, basically like, that's it. Like, you know, half the department got fired. So uh, got let go. And so I then made what is either like the most brilliant or the dumbest like career move uh, when it comes to my immediate thing. Uh, I get a call from, Uh, From this guy with a British accent uh, saying like, hey, I'm a big fan. I watched your work. And, um, you know, I saw that CNN just, you know, laid off its um, special and its investigative unit. Mm -hmm. Um, I'd like to do a, a media piece. About this, And I was like, who is this again? He's like, oh, there's like John Oliver from The Daily Show. And so then John Oliver and I created for The Daily Show a piece um, called Investigating Investigative Journalism,
0: <laughs> basically skewering CNN for firing its investigative journalism. It does sound like in, in hindsight, it does sound ridiculous, right? That like they would do that. At the time, obviously, there's money and, and economics and all this stuff at, at play, but it is hilarious.
1: That, that's exactly what it is. And the truth is that long form investigative international news maybe news in general has always had to be a loss leader because Mm -hmm. the media in general, and this is sort of the meat and the substance of it has a real monetization problem, Mm -hmm. right? Like the current way, especially in the digital landscape that media is monetized is through clicks, eyeballs and ad revenue, Mm -hmm. right? It's always changing. It's always dynamic, but the basic thing is, you know, newspapers create content Mm -hmm. and sell ads against them, sell digital ads against them, whether that's on Facebook or wherever else, right? Mm -hmm. In some ways, like all that news that's coming through on your Facebook feed, I call like faux gras journalism. They're kind of like stuffing it down your throat. Facebook, you know, until very recently was really monetizing against that. And so the overall meta effect that it had meta, all puns intended, the, the meta effect of that, right, is that, you know, and we all know this, there's nothing profound about it, is that... Today's current media landscape that information is incentivized from a monetary perspective for salaciousness and clicks, Mm -hmm. clickbait, right? They're incentivized for salaciousness, not for truth. There's not a monetization model Mm -hmm. around truth and investigation, at least not like a large monetization model. And this is actually the history, at least in television, the history of television news, right? Mm -hmm. The FCC – gave the three big networks the big three abc nbc uh cbs this incredibly valuable broadband spectrum Mm -hmm. right when they started broadcast news right when they started broadcast cable like the old rabbit ear antennas Mm -hmm. right the fcc gave them this this spectrum and they said okay we're going to give you this valuable radio spectrum right that you can broadcast your television programs on and you can you know sell ads and and all of this stuff on it right but here's the catch we are going to mandate, right, an FCC mandate that for one hour a day you do programming that informs the American public. mm mm-hmm. And that's the genesis of the nightly news hour. So, you know, Tom Brokaw and all those guys benefited from this clause that the FCC had that the big three had to do this one hour of like nightly network news programming that informed the American public. And that existed for generations until kind of the digital revolution and the advent of 24-hour cable news. Um, And now we're in this era of sort of atomization of of news and information everywhere, right? So, like, you know, uh, back then CNN made, you know, everything's reinventing and transforming and and eating itself. Bundling and unbundling. Exactly, (laughs) right? But back then, you know, like CNN disrupted the big three Mm -hmm. model, right? And now you have digital sort of disrupting that cable news model and we're just in this incredibly fractured news and information ecosystem Mm -hmm. i I describe it as having the effect it's as if somebody hit mercury with a sledgehammer Mm -hmm. and that's how our information environment is right Mm -hmm. now and all of the things that we thought were supposed to bring us closer together and connect us like social media platforms and stuff what we're realizing now at least in this current iteration of it is that it's actually having the effect of siloing us and driving us apart right yeah um one of the big challenges I think that we're facing as a society is this sort of tribalism that's coming from the ghettoization of news and information. And this is a tough problem Mm -hmm. to solve. There Mm -hmm. are not a lot of easy solutions for it. Um, And I think you see the permutations and the second and third order effects of that playing out throughout our culture, throughout our politics. Mm -hmm. Uh, And that's, that's where we're living these days, man.
0: Yeah. When, I think of your media career. There's two specific moments I want to talk about. The first is uh, when you got waterboarded on television. So uh, we we didn't know each other at this time, but um, I was in Iraq when all of the uh, um, kind of the initial uh, papers came out and the uh, enhanced interrogation techniques and like all this. And you can imagine we're like, somebody had the internet, right? And it was like, what happened? And so the waterboarding stuff uh, came out. And uh, I remember a guy walked in, uh, it's a little area we're all sitting, and uh, he was like, what is it? like, well, how hard could that fucking be? And we went outside and, like, literally laid down. And now, it wasn't the same thing in terms of uh, the feet above the head or whatever. But we basically laid down, put a towel over someone's head, poured water. How long did you go, right? And then it turns into a competition, and guys are, like, timing. And, of course, no one lasts more than, like, 20 seconds. Yeah. Right? But it's like, in our heads, we were, like, idiot kids, essentially. I was 20 or 21 years old, screwing around, trying to pass time, you know, in the middle of our rock. And then... You did it on national television. And I and and I think that at some point, like I I don't think any of us knew who you were or that you were doing or anything, but like I remember just being like, oh shit, somebody from uniform went and did on national television. And in some ways it was like, like started from the bottom, now we're here, right? Like somebody pulled it off. But the media and like I think the nation in general was like, oh shit, like somebody is actually gonna show us what this is. And so like, how did that happen? That like, was my first big like breakout <laughs> piece, right? And, and just you were make, viral before viral was a thing. Yeah, so early. <laughs> this whole
1: thing is making me sound prehistoric, you know. I'm still alive. Uh, that and just to be fair, that was the second time I'd been waterboarded. I'd been waterboarded in SEER training, you okay. know, and it was. So you long. knew what it was. I knew what it was. And yeah. that first time, you know, you know, in SEER, which is this, you know, survival evasion resistance mm-hmm. escape. You have all this stuff you're not supposed to tell them or whatever. They put me on that waterboard, and I'm like, I'm a SEAL. SEAL Team 1. <laughs> what do you want to know? What do you want to know? Uh, it's pretty bad, as yeah. you know, as yes, you experience yeah. Well, yeah.
0: to be clear, uh, the watered-down version, uh, no pun intended, yeah. is uh, – uh, all it made me think was uh, – I forget the gentleman's name. Uh, I think it was in Guantanamo. They uh, they waterboarded like my 182 times or something. KSM, Khalid Sheikh Mohammed. Yeah, yeah. And, and all I kept thinking to myself was like, dude, I, maybe I could survive one or two. Like if you had to do it 181 times, like I'd be telling you anything that you want to hear. Totally. <laughs> right? Side note, they they are not sure that they ever broke KSM.
1: They like Crazy. defined him as like a super resistor or whatever. Really interesting – interesting dude still down there at at, at gitmo yeah uh, architect of 9-11 and, mm-hmm. and all that stuff um so uh yeah so I, like how why
0: um uh, so your, your idea or somebody else's idea 100 percent my idea yeah i figured
1: yeah um and there's like two funny stories that that come out of it like uh the first is the uh, at CNN, it, that was the first time I was on national TV, okay. right? And so uh, Anderson Cooper, you know, who I consider a friend, good journalist, um, came from the same kind of like investigative DNA background that, that I did. Anderson called me up after the piece and he's like, he's like, gosh, that's it's amazing that you pulled this off. Like I, he asked me the same thing you did. Like how did you do it? You know, he's like, because I've been looking into it for a while and, you know, all I could find was like, these like, you know, weird S&M groups to do it to me. And I was like, it's the world you walk in, Anderson. You know? <laughs> that's uh,
0: You should definitely have them come do it on national television. Yeah, exactly.
1: <laughs> uh, but, um, no, look, basically the, the impetus was this. That debate was raging mm-hmm. in the national security community. Mm-hmm. Guys like you and I and within the military, it had sort of trickled out and was bubbling up, and people are saying, like, should we be doing this? Is it torture? Mm-hmm. John McCain had actually kind of gone to war with the White House. Mm-hmm. Um, I was a, a, a big John McCain fan. You know, he came and spoke when I was a plebe at the Naval Academy. I had read the book about him, Nightingale Song, um, and I had a tremendous amount of respect for what he had been through. And obviously mm-hmm. they talk about McCain and those guys at Sears School, right? Yep. A lot of the stuff is modeled on what those guys went through at the Hanoi Hilton. So I mm-hmm. thought he was a really credible voice in this debate. Um, and so this this debate was happening and I would see the White House like doing talking points. I'd see McCain kind of raging about them. And then I'd see all the pundits you know sort of saying stuff and i was like this is the most surreal bizarre debate because we're talking about this thing that nobody's ever seen and Mm -hmm. like doesn't really have any experience with except for guys like us so i was like look let's just let's just open the kimono and and show people what it is since we're having the Mm -hmm. debate and i thought that's how i could best be of service and and for me it was it was a moral position that if we're going to have informed debates like we need to know what we're talking about and that's where i saw my value mm-hmm. of bridging these two worlds between the military and the media yeah.
0: when, when you're like all right cool i think that we should do it on television uh and you call the producer or whoever like what's the rest- are they like hell yeah like let's do it or are they like let's call the lawyers and make sure that like you know something doesn't go wrong
1: actually all everybody said no the lawyers everybody this is a story mm-hmm. uh, a story lost to history or whatever but you know who said yes was okay. al was Al Gore really? Al thought it was important, and he overrode all of the lawyers. That that I think the CEO or the COO of the company mm-hmm. definitely overrode the general counsel, the GC mm-hmm. of the company. He said like, no, this is too important. Like, let Kaj do it uh, and that was the genesis of it i don't think i've ever even told that
0: story like yeah. to anyone ever um but, but that's but how it happened the lawyers yeah. are there they're supposed to be the risk killers right yeah. like hey this is pretty damn risky yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so and to some degree uh do you feel like it changed the conversation i do what people saw it i do i do like you know uh
1: in in journalism your wins are few and far between right especially these days right so i'll i'm happy to like you know, hang hang my hat a little bit on on that one, mm-hmm. and say like I think that was fundamentally different. It also sparked a whole series of of media coverage around it. So there was there was a a lot that happened from kind of like throwing that stone in the lake mm-hmm. and watching the ripple effect. I, I mean, up to and including several other pieces, another Emmy nominated piece that I did, where I interviewed uh, Jim Mitchell, who I consider a friend. He was the architect of that enhanced interrogation program. Um, I interviewed him. He had never spoken before. He had personally waterboarded Khalid mm-hmm. Sheikh Mohammed, those 180 odd mm-hmm.
0: times. He was the guy who did it. I and, interviewed him. And this is really important because I don't think yeah. people actually understand as part of the enhanced interrogation techniques. Uh, there was the waterboarding, which I think probably took the cake in, 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 the coverage. And it was something that, uh, it's easy to, uh, now see on television or on movies and, 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 uh, uh kind of gets recreated over and over again. Uh, but there was also things like uh, they told one of uh, – I think it was a One of the guys uh, he was really scared of insects.
1: And oh, so yeah. they told him
0: they the were box. like, uh, uh, hey, if this insect bites you, it will kill you. Right. And they put him in a box, uh, which is essentially like almost like a coffin-sized yeah. box or whatever. And they put the insect in there, and it was not a poisonous you know, killer insect. Yeah. But to some degree, uh, truth is what you believe, right? And so this dude definitely thought that they were going to kill him, right? And so it brought up the debate of like, actually not only is there the physical component of it, but the psychological component as well. And waterboarding is unique in that it has both of them to some degree. Um, And so like that whole time was like weird because I think it's hard for people to recognize uh, something that um, from the outside, idiot, we put you in a box and like there's an insect that can't do anything to you. On the other end, it's like there's a psychological component there that's pretty powerful. Totally,
1: completely. And, and I think these were fundamental questions, especially at that time, like what Mm -hmm. techniques are appropriate to Mm -hmm. use? Like, where do we draw the line? Right. Um, obviously John McCain was adamantly against anything that, that broached up to the line Mm -hmm. of torture. Um, and, and I think that that was important. I think for you and I, who, who both served right deep to our sort of core, ideology and sense of self that we served honorably Mm -hmm. right we Mm -hmm. both like on our dd 214 the paper you get when you discharge have that making a giant assumption here that we both have honorable discharges (laughs) i don't know
0: about you but i do but yes (laughs) okay okay, me too me too
1: all right good glad we got that out of the way right like that honorable discharge is really important to me and i want Mm -hmm. my my time in uniform to be remembered honorably Mm -hmm. um and so things that can impugn that um sometimes they're they're necessary, or things mm-hmm. that have the potential to impugn that. Um, so, look, there's, there was at the time, and still is, like a robust national debate on how we sort of gain intelligence and mm-hmm. information. I think this was an important thing, and as part of that ripple effect, you know, I, I I put Jim Mitchell on TV for the first time, talking from his perspective, and I think I gave him a a really fair shake, although a weird shake. I interviewed him. Uh, Here in Florida um, on a canoe surrounded by alligators because I thought it was a great metaphor for how he saw the world, right? And that that piece also got nominated for an Emmy, and that piece led to a movie with Adam Driver and Annette Bening called The Report, which was about this subject. So – Look, most of – 90 percent of the things you do in journalism kind of go out there into the ether and don't affect policy or don't affect the national discourse like, like anything else. You just you know sort of keep plugging. I do think that one helped shape the national discourse, so, mm-hmm. so I'm proud
0: of it. This episode is brought to you by Sigma. The bridge between iGaming, online sports betting, and emerging technology such as blockchain, NFTs, fintech, GameFi, Metaverse, and AI is loud and clear. The largest global summit of its kind is heading to Malta from November 15th through the 17th. Over a 1,000 exhibitors and 25,000 industry leaders will be there, including top executives from DraftKings, Bet365, crypto exchanges, betting software providers, operators, gaming affiliates, and more. Log on to AIBC.world and Sigma.world to see our upcoming global Global Summits. See you in Malta November 15th to 17th for the leading global event in gaming and emergent tech. This is Sigma. Go to Sigma.world today. This episode is brought to you by Valor, which represents what's next in the digital economy. They provide simplified trusted access in crypto, decentralized finance, and Web3 investment opportunities. Institutions and investors can gain diversified, secure, compliant, and easily tradable access to a diversified set of industry-leading equity products and protocols, all through a single stock purchase on a regulated exchange. They currently are listed in the U.S. under the DEFTF stock ticker and on the Canadian NEO exchange under DEFI. For more information or to subscribe to receive company updates and financial information, visit their website at valor.com. That's V-A-L-O-U-R.com. The other uh, moment um, that that I recently was reminded of, uh, Clarissa Ward from CNN was uh, in Afghanistan during the Afghan pullout, Uh, and I think the nation or at least folks that I talk to on a daily basis, they were very surprised to see a woman there surrounded by the Taliban, and she's like interviewing them. Right, and it it was uh, this weird uh, kind of cognitive dissonance of like everything that they had assumed or thought about uh, was being shaken, but also they understood that like this is a very dangerous situation. Why? Because she's literally like, oh, wait, uh, they're shooting at somebody, you know, and she's like talking about this live. And what it reminded me of is uh, you did a piece with Vice very early on, I think, uh, where you were actually in, uh, I think it was a plane, and it was uh, in Nigeria with Boko Haram. And for whatever reason, it was probably one of a bunch of pieces of early vice that I'd watched. But I remember this because <laughs> you're like, uh, and now they're shooting at, uh, at And there's like a guy hanging out to the side with like a, uh, machine gun. He's just like, PKM, <laughs> and, yeah. yeah. And, and, and you're like, you can just tell like, you're much more comfortable than I think like a normal journalist would be. Yeah. And so like in those situations, like it's one thing with current TV and like, Hey, we're going to waterboard you, but it's somewhat of a controlled environment. And like, it's on national television, but like, you know what you're getting yourself into. Going into these conflict zones, very different. Like, whether it's Clarissa, whether it, it, it's you uh, uh, doing some of the stuff, like, how did you think about, like, when to say yes? And, like, did you ever say, actually, I don't think that that's one that we should go do for whatever reason? Yeah, absolutely. For me,
1: like, the the great white whale, you know, the stories that got away yeah. are, are just the ones that I, I didn't get to do mm-hmm. for, for whatever reason. Uh, you know, anything, any operation, any mission, any— Journalism assignment that I tried to do is always a Mm risk-benefit calculus, and there are just some times where it's not worth it, and then there are other times where you push the envelope. I remember there was this former problem of Somalis uh, fleeing to Yemen Mm -hmm. um, during – there's – unfortunately now we're reverse migration because Yemen's one of the most dangerous places in the world so somalis actually were returning to somalia um, But for a while because mogadishu and the rest of somalia was so dangerous they were uh, there were somali refugees like taking these boats uh, across the uh the the sea of Aden or the red sea um, to the yemeni coast okay. and they were Somebody had told me, someone, a friend from the humanitarian, from the human rights community had told me that you could go to a beach in Yemen and set up cameras and that bodies would just wash up on the beach. And it sounded apocryphal. It sounded like something – Like, yeah, right. People say that stuff, but they're being hyperbolic. No, I went there and it was like absolutely true because these boats were so rickety and shaky bringing these refugees across. And Somalis, as we said earlier, don't really swim that well quite often. Uh, They were like the boats were capsizing, they're drowning. And you just set up a camera on the beach and you'd wait till morning, till sunrise, and bodies would just wash up uh, on on the beach. So I was trying to get a smuggler to take me on one of the boats. To go across, yep. um, and uh, in the par, end, it couldn't make it is work. Is it? Yeah, I can't remember. I think it was like a two-day journey or oh, something.
0: So you couldn't swim; like you yourself wouldn't be able to probably swim. Well, I
1: wouldn't it. go that far. No, no.
0: <laughs> <laughs> given it was, you yeah.
1: know, no, 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 tens of not miles. swimmable. Yeah, yeah, yeah got, not okay. swimmable. Quite sharky. Yep, uh, all of that, all okay. of that stuff. Um, I think most of these people were drowning within sight of shore. Um, and the reason mm. being is that the Yemeni Coast Guard was patrolling at the time. The smugglers would Jump in. Would, would dump them and 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 yeah. go.
0: Uh, I, I don't think people actually uh, understand Th- this specific situation. Uh, I, I don't know anything about. But um, even on the American uh, borders, right? When you look at some of these videos, and and uh, I've talked to people who are, are uh, Border Patrol and things like that around um, these rivers that they're crossing, like if you were a person who didn't have a reason to go across uh, that was life or death or, or, or you wanted to get to America or something like that, you probably wouldn't cross, right? Like like, yeah. like they're dangerous things to do. And we're talking about walking in many cases or swimming across a river that you can see the other side. You're talking about here of like basically going on a two-day voyage and like hope we're heading in the right direction.
1: Oh, right? yeah. With like 300 people crammed in. The conditions were supposed to be atrocious. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I, I, and you know, the reason that I wanted to do a story like that, um, obviously the story has, has changed many years later, is like, you know, to, there's a human component mm-hmm. to that. And again, like we're talking about all of these policies and all of these ideas. And I think, especially in policy, like I have a master's in policy, right? I, mm-hmm. I get the policy world, but quite often we lose the human dynamic and the mm-hmm. human factor. And that's where, where journalism and, and cameras and filmmaking and storytelling can sort of bring us closer to the reality Mm -hmm. of a situation. I wouldn't ask anybody to cross the Red Sea in a raft with Mm -hmm. Somali refugees, but I do think that the power in its highest form in its most altruistic form, that's what good journalism
0: Mm -hmm. can be. Mm -hmm. How did you convince cameramen to go with you? Or did you sometimes just say "fuck it," give me the camera, and I'll uh, I'll be back? I, I, every once in a while, I've done that.
1: Like that, that uh, that was actually a Hind helicopter that you're describing God, okay. in in, uh, in northern Nigeria. Every once in a while, I've had to shoot it myself, yeah. like uh, the cameraman on that one went home it was it was very dangerous but you know in in all these communities in the world like I think for better or for worse guys like you and me find like-minded people (laughs) right so I was doing uh, stunts on uh water stunts on the Jack Ryan series kind of like Mm -hmm. a side hustle fun hobby of mine is to do stunt work occasionally and uh uh and I and I was sitting with this like crew of stunt men like you know um as we're preparing to do a stunt and I was like oh these guys are just like frog men you know if there was no rules about like you know uh, felony convictions or <laughs> yeah. college degrees or yeah. anything like that it's this the same sort of adventurous risk taking mm-hmm. dna um i and i always thought like it's it's amazing that's why i loved the seal team so much uh, and so close to to the guys that i served with i love when when you take that gene that like adrenaline chasing mm-hmm. You know, call it courage, whatever that ingredient, whatever that human quality is, and then you channel it
0: mm-hmm. for
1: a mission and purpose. Um, and I think that's the real secret sauce, the real secret power of the special operations community. Yeah. Um, and it, and it, frankly, it multiplies out to the conventional services yeah. as well. Anybody who is willing uh, to put themselves in harm's way or to take risk yeah. for a, for a higher purpose, you know, that that goes a long way in my book.
0: Uh, there's a uh, a story um, that I didn't know until recently. Uh, Dakota Meyer. Uh, oh, yeah. Dakota's uh, great. So he um, he told the story in a way where, uh, for those that don't know, um, he uh, was awarded Medal of Honor. Uh, him and a driver drove back and forth into uh, a village under heavy fire, the rest of their life, all this stuff. Uh, but he told the kind of pre story before those actions. And, and basically, he was going to be on a mission. He gets told uh, he was basically raising too many concerns and, and kind of giving people a hard time, supposedly, and, and said, hey, why don't you just go sit up? there and let us go do the mission. And, uh, when he gets in the truck, he basically says to the driver, Hey, shit may go bad today. Uh, when it does get the fuck out of the driver's seat and I'm going to go save them. And the driver who in many cases, uh, these, you know, Humvees and stuff, they're not actual, uh, just the driver, right? They have other responsibilities or whatever. He was like, you're not going anywhere without me. Right. And, And there's this element of, uh, I think a lot about like courage is contagious as well. And so, uh, when you see one person do it, all of a sudden everyone is like, well, we can all do it, right? And and I do think that's part of the beauty of uh, the military in general, but also the special operations community is that like, you just need one person to be like, guys, we can do this. Yeah. Next thing you know, everyone's like, well, fuck yeah, let's go do it. Yeah, so true and so inspiring. Also, the contrapositive is true. Like I, uh,
1: (laughs) so is fearfulness, right? And I remember in Bud's like, you know, so many lessons are sort of forged there on the sand. Um, Guys rarely quit alone, Wow, I did not yeah. know that. Yeah, so you'll be sitting there in the surf, locked, arm-in-arm, arm, middle of the night. Everybody's jackhammering because yeah. their body's so cold it's trying to generate heat or whatever. And the bell, that alluring like gold bell, is right over there. And you'll see like guys whispering, like, hey, like I'll quit if you quit kind of thing. No way. And then they just start sprinting in twos for the bell right? So I I, I totally heed your point and honor it. And I'm adding an additional point that it works both ways.
0: Yeah. I never thought of it that way, but that is fascinating that nobody wants to quit And and so
1: what's the lesson there, right? Like, like, careful who you surround yourself with. Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Absolutely. Do you see um, Jack Carr's uh, Terminal Terminalist? Yeah. What'd you think of it? Uh, I I thought it was good, right? Like, uh, look, I'm happy whenever
1: anybody is able to take their experience. I tried to do this Mm -hmm. myself, take their experience and evolve into a new Mm -hmm. chapter and be in the sort of creative industries. Like, do I think the plot line, like as like, you know, a still, you know, you know, Lieutenant Commander and the SEAL teams, right? Like, do I think that Lieutenant Commanders are going rogue and, like, killing their own platoons? Like, yeah. I do not. Like <laughs> That part's a little preposterous, yeah, yeah. but in terms of, like— Makes you it know, for a good book. Makes, right? for, it makes for a, a great good TV book. Show. Yeah, 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 yeah. I just want to say, like, yeah. we are not doing that. Like, <laughs> the dudes that I served with, the admirals that I served with, like, are some among the finest Americans I've ever met in my whole life. Um, but, yeah, look, it's so awesome to see Jack— pseudonym is to see <laughs> Jack uh to see him thrive and succeed mm-hmm. in the creative endeavors and you know have a that, it, that's Amazon right yes. that's what yeah yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. on uh, you know to have like an, on a big streaming outlet yeah. and like all of these
0: accolades and um uh yeah like it, Good it, on it, you, man. One of the things that I took away from it was uh, I knew that a lot of uh, military veterans were doing uh, training for movies and, and things <laughs> like that. And um, uh, I always joked that, like, if you ever watch a movie and like somebody's like holding a gun the wrong way or whatever, you are like, I don't yeah. right. Um, And uh, and now there is even a whole vein of uh, I don't know if you've seen uh, a lot of uh, uh, SEALs and special forces guys, whatever, they do reaction videos oh, yeah. on YouTube. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, and they're yeah. like, that's just not real. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, but this one was one I thought very well done. But also, two, I was like, oh shit! Like I never thought about all these lived experiences that people had for 20 years, like they are going to come to books, they're going to come to movies, they're going to come to these uh, media platforms that I think most Americans haven't seen that stuff in a long time.
1: Now is the time, right? Yeah. There was, there wasn't like a bunch of great Vietnam Mm -hmm. movies right apocalypse now like didn't get made until you know a decade after vietnam right like there takes some cultural maturation Mm -hmm. that has to happen for all these products and i mean some of it is just like us getting out of the service Mm -hmm. and finding our legs in the civilian world Mm -hmm. um and but like i think that that time period Mm -hmm. is is now happening like and it's also like a time of reflection right in Mm -hmm. some ways we've wound down we've certainly wound down afghanistan um but and like we've wound down the global war on terror in fact they i just read that the uh I think the national defense ribbon as an automatic, I remember that sort of like participation ribbon that everybody gets, you know, the national defense ribbon because we're in a time of war. Mm -hmm. I think that's going away as an automatic, you know, signaling that we are ebbing from the global war on terror. Um, And so I think now is a time for reflection on the two longest wars in American history. Culture, pop culture, are some of the the best ways to, to do it. Yeah. You know, and I'm proud of of guys like like Jack Carr. Um, you know, being able to use the creative industries to do that kind of storytelling. Like, we're certainly not the only voice and the only lived experience mm-hmm. in America, um, but you know, over over two million of us in uniform during the you know, Iraq and Afghanistan wars. Like we're, we're a part of the fabric of American society.
0: Yeah. When you think of kind of your post uh, military career, uh, you did a lot of what I'll call the, the war correspondent and and, and media work. Uh, Now you have, uh, I, I would, from my outside view, uh, kind of three different legs. You have uh, some humanitarian work, things like Team Rubicon and, and others. Uh, you still uh, go to some of these areas. So uh, I believe you've gone to Ukraine a couple of times now. Um, and then you also are participating in, in building technology and products and stuff like that that uh, kind of shadow the line between uh, great tech products but also help the military community. I thought maybe we could just kind of talk through each one of those, and, and the humanitarian piece to me is uh, something that isn't surprising. But uh, you have a very wide variety of, of uh, things that you participate in, uh, from uh, swimming yeah. to uh, the team Rubicon. Stuff. So, like, talk yeah. through a little bit as to like some of that work and like why choose some of the things you've chosen to do. Yeah, yeah.
1: Well, I will just caveat that like Ukraine was a total aberration. Okay, I did not intend to go to Ukraine. I uh, you know, I, I got out of the SEAL reserves in 2017. Mm-hmm. Um, I thought I was done going to war. I made this transition, as you indicated, from the media into money, right, mm-hmm. where I have this 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 fintech company that I'm super proud of. Um, and I really thought I was done. In fact, I was two months into my startup uh, when I had the really wonderful conversation with my co-founder. Like, hey, I know we just launched this, this great new startup guild. Like, things are— you know, humming along, things are awesome. But, like, we're so early stage that we've never even talked about vacation policy. <laughs> but everybody gets vacation, right? So I'm going to take my vacation and take a little sabbatical and go to Ukraine because I feel morally compelled to do so. Mm-hmm. So, But what it does the U- the ukraine mission uh does fit into this like kind of my portfolio is really divided in in half it's my and and the venn diagram overlaps a lot there's the humanitarian um service oriented work that i do my philanthropic work and i did that for a decade it helped start an organization using my combat pay called the mission continues mm-hmm. That led to – and served on the board there. Uh, That was about giving veterans a sense of purpose Mm -hmm. and and giving them an opportunity to do public service. And then that led to us giving a grant to Team Rubicon to start Team Rubicon. I also sat on the board at Team Rubicon. Again, humanitarian work in disaster zones. So I spent – uh, and now I'm part of a team called Force Blue, which takes former combat divers, repurposes their skills for ocean conservation. Uh, it's awesome. It's actually based right here in Miami. We're all we all became scientific divers for the Frost Science Center downtown oh, here in Miami. So we go out, we do coral restoration, we do um, uh, turtle rescue missions. Um, it's it's pretty, it's pretty awesome. It, like as a frogman, it gets me back in the water with yeah. a, a sense of mission and purpose. So I have this, I've for, for the last decade concurrent with my media career in parallel, I've been really oriented in the veteran service space. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I've spent a decade trying to give veterans a sense of mission and purpose. But what I've come to realize in this, this next chapter in my life, um, and we started this company this uh, this past Veterans Day. Uh, we launched on November 11th, and so we're coming up on our that was our beta, but we're coming up on essentially our one year anniversary. Uh, what I started to realize is that sense of veterans' purpose is really important, mm-hmm. and it's what economists call necessary but not sufficient. Oh, interesting. If we are not just giving veterans a sense a renewed sense of mission and purpose, but we're not also paying attention to their purse mm-hmm. and to their sense of financial se- security, their sense of financial stability, their long-term financial health and wellness, mm-hmm. like all of the mission stuff in the world isn't going to matter, right? Mm-hmm. And all the problems that we hear in the military community, in the veterans community, um, a lot of those are magnified by this lack of financial stability and planning like um, and financial health and wellness and lack of financial literacy. So basically the way it started for me is like, you know the the analog here is like you know people talk about you know meditation and there's a lot of talk in the wellness space like you and I are big fitness buffs mm-hmm. right like I do a lot in the fitness space I owned a crossFit gym for many years right like that's like that's how I keep my knife sharp yep. you know is by is by pushing the envelope physically um, and even a lot of the veterans events are like you know swims around the Hudson and all of that stuff it's all part of like keeping my my mind body sharp mm-hmm. um but when I think in the wellness space there's all this talk about mindfulness and meditation, Really important stuff, really valuable stuff. But you can go meditate for 30 minutes in the morning. And then if you come back to like a trove of credit card companies, Mm -hmm. right, telling you how much debt you have, like all of that mindfulness and all of that zen is out the window. And in the military community, I don't know what your transition was like, but in large part, the military community has been left behind by the private wealth community. Without a doubt. Right. When you got out of the service, right, did you do TAPS? Yeah. Uh, The transition program?
0: uh, I think when we came back from Iraq, there was like a a yellow ribbon program. And it was like a day. And it was like, bring your families. And like everyone like showed up. And was like, all right. We sat in like an auditorium. Uh, They tried. Like to be fair, it was uh, very well-intentioned. But uh, it's hard when you're talking to a room full of, I don't know, a couple hundred people, uh, and every single person is literally completely different. Like, how do you talk to uh, the commander and the, you know, private first class about the same issues? Like, it's just different.
1: And it's, it starts at day one when yeah. we enter the military, right? Mm-hmm. The uh, I'm sure you're aware they've changed the retirement system in mm-hmm. the military, right? So you enter the military, you're 17, you're 18 years old, you know, you're a recruit, you're going to boot camp, um, and... Then you get to your, you know, your first training station or your first duty station, right? And it's hard in general to get 17 and 18-year-olds to think about their long-term financial future, right? I I, I bet I'm just going to go out on a limb here and say you
0: either have a personal story or, like, some friends who did some pretty stupid things with their money. I, I remember being in Iraq uh, and there was – I don't know how old the kid was. He, he was young and, like, he was like, I have no money. And and we were like, dude, like everything you're earning here is tax-free up to whatever point, you know, $87, whatever. Uh, What do you mean you have no money? And he was like, walked you through his financial decisions. And you were like, if you wrote down like everything not to do, like this kid checked every single box. And like, thankfully the military was giving him food and a place to sleep and like all this stuff. But I was like, wow. And it was just like very egregious things. And then you realize like, yeah, this kid has never, he's never been in this position before. and, And no one's ever told him, Not even uh, what to do to grow wealth, just like how do you understand to spend less than you make? Right. Right. I mean like it's simple, simple stuff. Simple budgeting. Yeah. Right. And there is – that
1: financial literacy gap is huge Mm -hmm. and and I think we saw it over and over. And the the bad news is that there are a lot of forces aligned against military members when it comes to – finances, right? So explain a couple of them. Well, you know, just first and foremost, there's a pay gap mm-hmm. relative mm-hmm. to their sort of civilian counterparts. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the second is um, you know, there's been a change in the military retirement mm-hmm. system, mm-hmm. right? So, you know, what used to be a defined benefit system has gone to a contribution-based system, so the TSP, right? That's not necessarily bad, um, but you're asking 17 and 18-year-olds now to make complex decisions about their financial future without – the preparation and the financial literacy that's required for it, um, and then there's just like a predatory environment. So I went to jump school back then. The army owned the air pipeline, so I okay. went to jump school at Fort Benning, Georgia. Mm-hmm. Were you ever there? Mm-hmm. Like, uh, the, uh, no, remember, you never got like, to Benning. Yeah, okay, yeah. but it's like every other military base yeah. with a ville on the outside. You mm-hmm. know the ville, mm-hmm. right? So you, you walk outside the the gates and there's well, what is it? Strip clubs, uh, tattoo parlors, yes. some payday loans, yes. and a used bars, car dealership bars, and bars, yeah. right? <laughs> (laughs) So I mapped from Fort Benning, Georgia, where I went to basic parachutist school, to the first, from the main gate, to the first used car dealership Uh with an over 20% interest rate, 0.7 miles. You can walk, if you don't have a car, from the main gates of Fort Benning, Georgia, to that first used car dealership and get your new Mustang because you have like a regular government paycheck. Got to get that Mustang, right?
0: (laughs) 20%
1: 20% interest, right? And people have no idea. They don't understand compounding interest, right? They don't understand mm-hmm. um, what what that ef- effect is. So there's this also this predatory environment out there, right? There's cultural, there's predatory headwinds. And even in like today's day and age, like we look at inflation, mm-hmm. right? Inflation has hit the military community harder than the civilian community, partially because our pay raises our pay rates are set by Congress, right? Mm -hmm. And that takes a political process to change. Our sort of economic equivalents, blue-collar workers who might be in unions and stuff, can pivot. They can chart, change their contracts. They can do things to adjust with the pace of inflation Mm -hmm. faster than the military did, right? In
0: addition to just a sort of lower wages in general. And and the size. I I think a lot of people forget the size of the military uh, uh, kind of base. When you make one two percent adjustments it's a lot of money swing you know the swing of amount of capital that is now going to be allocated from a budget standpoint is very large right so actually you know uh, the administration and
1: congress passed a 3.7 percent military pay raise uh this year sounds good right but inflation's running at nine percent so the military to my mind got a six percent pay cut mm-hmm. this year and so uh so you see this environment and it, and it's it's translating into all kinds of Things Right. Eighty four percent of military families cite financial stress as the number one household issue. Wow. Um, You know, the army is going to miss its recruiting goal by half this Mm -hmm. year by half. Right. So there's all these second and third order effects of it. And luckily, DOD is waking up to Mm -hmm. this reality. In fact, I I just saw that um, I think it was the Joint Chiefs helped, you know, push through this augmented bill Mm -hmm. that will help keep military members above the poverty line. Wow. This is a sad day yeah. when our uniform members are living below the poverty line. Mm-hmm. Um, so the the environment is tough. The The DOD has n- not sufficiently prepared mm-hmm. uh, young military members and veterans, the military community, um, in terms of financial health and wellness. Mm-hmm. So because I had spent all this time in veteran service and with this mission of helping veterans, I, I realized – that my my new calling, my new purpose was to really embark on this path to help close that wealth gap, mm-hmm. right? Um, the best way to do it is is or one of the good ways to do it is through financial education mm-hmm. and training, and the other is through investing. Mm-hmm. Um, so I created this platform uh, along with two other naval officers, um, two Navy intel officers, actually, because you know we needed some big brains and not just a paleolithic knuckle dragger. You
0: know, <laughs> you need <laughs> yeah. it all to, to be successful, <laughs> right? Yeah,
1: intel drives operations. <laughs> yeah. You know, um, so you no, know, my co-founder is twenty-year Wall Street veteran. Um, we we looked at. We looked at this pay gap, or we looked at this this wealth gap between the military and civilian community, uh, and we saw that there was no company out there serving the military for private wealth. Mm-hmm. Um, you would have thought that USAA traditionally mm-hmm. had that market locked up. I'm a USAA member. In fact, I just bought homeowners insurance through USAA this morning. Right? Yeah. <laughs> uh, I actually love USAA. I think they're 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 awesome. But uh, you know, a couple of years ago, they sold off their investing arm to Charles Schwab. Right? So you literally go on the USAA website, click invest, it'll redirect you to the Charles Schwab website. No affiliation mm-hmm. with the military community. So we saw a need out there for a company that had military ingrained in its DNA mm-hmm. to help um, – increase the financial health and wellness of the mm-hmm. military community. So our our big over the horizon north star goal is to raise 50 billion dollars in wealth for the military community. Mm-hmm. We do that by getting, you know, several million military members and their families um, investing with accounts worth, you know, if we can get all of those families to get $10,000 worth of an investment account, we'll achieve our goal. The way we do it is the same way, you know, we do it in the military, right? Like through training and education, yeah. and we actually believe in this so much, so we've created a curriculum on our platform, a knowledge curriculum, and that has simple things on it like savings versus investing. Mm-hmm. What your buddy who had no money in Iraq really—the video he really needed to—I don't know if I want to
0: claim buddy status. Yeah, so I want yeah, yeah. <laughs> <say>, uh, colleague. <laughs> yeah, uh,
1: your your battle buddy. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, the what you know what that fifty-eight second video. You, if he had watched that and answered two simple questions on mm-hmm. savings versus investing, we'd put $5 in his brokerage account to start to invest. So what mm-hmm. the platform is essentially is a self-directed investing platform, fractional mm-hmm. shares, zero commissions. And we're trying to get people started on that investing journey, right? Yep. So that they can have build long-term financial health and wealth. And,
0: and what's fascinating is, uh, one just telling someone, hey, you can do this, right, is is incredibly empowering. But the second thing is uh, understanding the perspective they're coming from. I think it it is uh, um, an underrated thing in these scenarios because people are like, oh, okay, the military, whatever. Like there are certain things that these people will go through. Uh, Divorce is a incredibly high rate in the military, uh, especially with young uh, military members versus uh, kind of their civilian peers. Um, And when you start thinking about all of these components that actually are financial uh, aspects of their life. Um, realizing that and being able to build a product, uh, it makes sense that of course people are going to flow there. They'll say, Hey, you, you understand me. You have the products that I need. Uh, and if you can just get in front of them and get them there, then why wouldn't it work? hundred percent. And Look, to be clear, our
1: platform's open to anybody. Like, mm-hmm. by in, investing, by holding your portfolio on the Guild platform, you support the military community. And one of the ways you do that is our curriculum, that knowledge curriculum I was talking about, is literally some of it. Some of it is good general financial advice. Mm-hmm. But we have a whole tab called Military Money that's designed specifically for the circumstances you Got just it. mentioned. Like, you know, how to read your leave and earnings statement, right? Uh, you know, how to invest in the TSP or what happens if you – PCS, if you change your station, right? Yeah. You know, a lot of military folks are, are being moved— to a, a different area, you know, eighteen months, twenty-four year, three-year cycles, like much more frequently than their civilian counterparts, and those have, as you said, those are really have economic implications, right? So, our we have an entire section of our knowledge curriculum, training, and education devoted just to military-specific circumstances. Um, yeah. And so, so, yeah. So, so the platform
0: it. is completely open. It's a fintech platform that uh, anyone can use. So, whether uh, you are a service member or you're not, you can use it. And really, the idea is for the service members there are uh, now uh, uh, all of these different features and products that uh, other fintech applications have, but they are specifically designed with you in mind and, and kind of serve the needs that you have. Uh, but also, if you are not in the military, and you simply want to support the military, you can go ahead and use this application. Uh, and some of the resources and, and, and time and energy of that team and stuff is going to help the military as well.
1: That's, that's exactly it. And, yeah. um, you know, we like to say, and I've, Fundamentally believe that money moves at the speed of trust. Mm -hmm. People will invest their money, they'll hold their money, they'll let other people be custodians of their portfolios Mm -hmm. um, with people that they trust. And for me, there's a a large trust gap Mm -hmm. in the financial market, especially Mm -hmm. with the military. And look, I don't expect anybody to invest on our platform just because we wore the uniform and our our military folks trust doesn't work that way trust is earned right uh, what we do think is that through through our experience and through the platform itself you'll see that trust and one of the things well well i'll put our platform up against any of the other you know apps and companies out there where people there are lots of places to hold their Mm-hmm. that people can hold their money right and and some of them are 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 quite excellent and the are because we have a social mission just to help the military community in general like the most important thing for me is to get military personnel and veterans investing in their future whether mm-hmm. you do that on our platform or another platform is fine one of the things that i believe increases the the trust of of our platform is not just that we all served in the military and we have this shared experience, but also the platform itself, right, uh, is built around trust and transparency. Mm -hmm. So if you think about the two biggest – barriers to entry for investing it's people think they don't have enough money and even if they did they don't know where what to, to invest yep. their money you know you break down that we don't have enough money by doing fractional by allowing fractional share investing mm-hmm. so you can start investing with as little as a dollar mm-hmm. right um, and so that sort of takes that out of the equation and then the other piece is the knowledge piece and we talked about the the knowledge curriculum but the sort of third leg of the triangle there is is trust and transparency and so one of the one of the features the way our platform is designed is that everybody comes on they get an anonymous username um and actually you'll see they also hashtag so you'll see people grouping by like hashtag army hashtag navy seals right so you can actually check out on our platform how the army portfolio how all the hashtag army folks are are performing but you get this just
0: just tell us who's outperforming who
1: I mean, you know it's Navy, of course. <laughs> it, it is not. You know That was like a softball no, so you could tee off. But it's off not on true. Yeah. You know the answer. Yeah, it's yeah. the Air Force. Yeah, of course. Because they have all this time to like. When I was invest. in Iraq, I, yeah. I
0: remember we walked by some Air Force guys, and uh, they had very, very, very nice uh, yeah. area to stay in. And uh, one of them said a comment that just, I will forever never uh, forgive anyone in the Air Force. They were like, oh, yeah, if we had to stay with you guys, we would get hazard pay. Totally. <laughs> <laughs> and like, I remember being like, literally, yeah. like, that does yeah. look to me the truth here <laughs> yeah
1: well i mean you you know the reality is like it's easy to get those stock tips
0: on your nice golf courses yes. right <laughs> <laughs> absolutely so but, uh, but there is so, this so grouping by service
1: there there is that's one of the many ways that you can mm-hmm. organize and there's actually some interesting data around you know how how these different communities are performed but more importantly you know so full trust and transparency like everybody gets an anonymous username I'm gilded frog one you can literally like be on the platform every day we rack and stack people mm-hmm. and I took this straight out of straight out of CrossFit like yep. a whiteboard or straight out of a Peloton yep. um, you know we rack and stack the top performing portfolios in the platform by day week and month so you can ah. literally go on to this leaderboard right and you can say oh there gilded frog one uh, he's number three on the leaderboard I want to see what he's holding you can click into there and you can see not by dollar amount but by percentage what they're holding in their portfolio and you can see like wow this person like you know like the market was down on friday right Mm -hmm. because of all this stuff about fed rates and all uh, about interest rates being raised by the fed and stuff markets down but you go wow this portfolio is up 11 that's that's incredible gains how like how did they do that Click in, and you can see, like, okay, he's holding, you We're know, like, yeah, XYZ of this percentage of investment, mm-hmm. right? And so you can actually see what these people are holding. So that not only increases trust and transparency, it's it's also a learning tool. Yeah, it's yeah. a peer-to-peer mentorship kind of learning tool. And if you think about how most people are
0: getting their financial advice, like Reddit Right, or, or you know, I'm fascinated the, with the t- the TikTok 22 year old who is yes. uh, dropping uh, uh, the knowledge of uh, how that how they're going to retire by 35. Yeah, <laughs> no, like all of these financial, yeah.
1: you know, YouTube, Reddit, you know, TikTok, all the 300 percent gains, mm-hmm. all of this stuff. Okay, that may be true. Mm-hmm. or it may not be true. And mm-hmm. that to me is like one of like one of the real problems with this like ecosystem of of financial information out there yeah. is that we don't actually have any verification processes on what's happening on Reddit. We don't know how true that is. Somebody could claim they had these giant mm-hmm. gains, but on our platform, you can see in real time with real conviction what people are investing in and mm-hmm. how they're performing. And that kind of transparency doesn't really exist, right? And mm-hmm. like, you know, if you have a financial Advisor, right? The old, like, if you're such a good financial advisor, how come you're not rich, right? I, pr- I prefer
0: to use Warren Buffett's, uh, Wall Street's the only place where people, uh, take, I think they're Bentleys to take advice from people who ride the subway. Yeah. Because <laughs> <laughs> exactly. right? if Warren Buffett says it, then you're not a troll, then you're just yeah. merely repeating, uh, the financial gods, uh, comments. Totally. totally. Well, or I was, you know, I was actually a, a guest of the Buffetts
1: at, at Berkshire Hathaway uh-huh. conference this year, you know, what they call Woodstock for capitalists. Yes. And he said a, a similar thing like you know he's got themes right yes. and uh, and he said oh yeah um, it uh, financial advisors are um, people who know, you know, it's like people who know nothing about the stock market being advised by people who know even less, you You know?
0: (laughs) (laughs) Exactly.
1: Yeah. So, and that, and that's part of the reason that we think one self-directed investing Mm -hmm. is important, that people have to take control of Mm -hmm. their, their financial future. Uh, and two, that we believe that this transparency piece is really important. The ability to look at real time, real time conviction of how um, portfolios are performing about how mm-hmm. people's portfolios are performing and to use that as a as a model and a and a mentorship tool mm-hmm. of course it requires research of course it requires people mm-hmm. to be educated about what they're doing but uh, it, it's sort of a start and we think that differentiates us we also have a A really interesting thing that came out of Naval Intelligence School. Mm So my co-founder, Naval Intelligence Officer, was at Damneck Neck going through Naval Intelligence Officer Training School. Um, They studied this case of the USS Scorpion, which was essentially – discovered in 1968 using a collective intelligence approach Um, goldman sachs has a very similar thing called the goldman sachs vip Mm -hmm. index where they use this sort of aggregation of top performing stocks you know lots Mm -hmm. of sort of financial products use this kind of approach to collective intelligence we've taken that model we've put it on the guild platform we we aggregate the top 30 uh holdings on the guild portfolio and it's this idea this james serwicky idea of the wisdom of crowds Mm -hmm. that you know um None of us is smarter than all of us, right? Mm -hmm. And what we've seen, even in this down market where the S&P is, you know, still off, you know, 13% on the year, um, that the guild portfolio, this collective intelligence portfolio that we have is outperforming uh, the S&P pretty substantially. So anyways, that's sort of like nerding out about the tools and the wickets and the design of the platform. Um, But the the meta point is that, you know, I I think we have built the most trusted and transparent – investing platform out there um and it serves it's open to anyone but it also it fund its fundamental mission is to serve the military community and you could make the argument uh that there's no community that's sort of more deserving to you know participate mm-hmm. in in the growth the wealth growth of the united states yeah you know?
0: This episode is brought to you by Bullish. They've reinvented the digital asset exchange. They give you access to DeFi features like automated market making and liquidity pools in a regulated environment. It's a whole new way to generate alpha. Bullish's total trading volumes have exceeded $25 billion just in the seven months since it launched. And the industry leading order depth means you can trade confidently when you want at scale with better pricing and lower risk, all within a regulated market environment. Good reason to be bullish. Learn more at bullish.com slash pomp and follow at bullish on Twitter today. This episode is brought to you by Exodus. Accessing Web3 across multiple networks just got a hell of a lot easier. Exodus is one of the most popular crypto wallets for mobile and desktop, and they just added Chrome and Brave web browsers to the lineup. The new Exodus Web3 wallet is a multi-chain browser extension that lets you safely navigate Web3 and DeFi apps on Ethereum, Solana, and Algorand from one wallet. Manage, mint, and sell NFTs on multiple networks in one wallet. You can swap Solana and ETH tokens natively right within the extension. And if you ever hit a snag, world-class customer service is available 24/7. More of your favorite chains are on the way, so run, don't walk, over to Exodus.com/pomp to download the Exodus Web3 wallet right now. Again, Exodus.com/pomp. Go check them out today. And it feels like uh, there's a lot of people who they simply just want to support the military, right? Mm-hmm. Like like there's people who say, hey, uh, um, I, in, in like the crypto world, people always ask me like, uh, uh, where's the decentralized Twitter? Like no one's leaving Twitter for decentralized Twitter, right? Like <laughs> it has to be a 10x better product. Here, actually, though, uh, buying stocks, you can do it on a lot of different platforms. But I do think that uh, uh, even if that's all you did, right, you didn't even build something better, which I think you guys are building something better. But if you didn't do that, there's still a lot of people who would say, hey, I'd rather just support the military and, and do it on a platform that understands how important that organization is to our country.
1: Yeah, you know, as a... As a- as a, a tech entrepreneur, you know this, well, you have all these wild ideas, all these yeah. theories about how things are <laughs> going to work. Right. And then, then you hit the bat with yes. Jocko, you yes. know, yes. and Jocko, you know, armbar crucifixions you and like your reality comes crashing down. At least that's my lived yeah. experience. Right. But no, you have all these like wild ideas as a tech entrepreneur. And then every once in a while, um, you get sort of proof, positive data points that mm. some of your hypotheses are true. Right. Mm-hmm. So we launched this company in, in beta on veterans day last year we went live january 1st mm-hmm. um and we really did it pretty front sight focused with the military community mm-hmm. in mind but we had this sort of inkling of an idea that uh people supporters that there's this patriot affinity Mm -hmm. market out there, people who want to support the military Mm -hmm. community and will sort of put their money where their mouth is, not as a donation, like I know this very well that people do that from a donation world, um, but from an investment perspective that they will invest on, you know, platforms like like ours, and uh, as we have gone out and we've, you know, I was speaking to 350 Marines at Camp Pendleton the other day. Like I'm speaking to the ROTC unit at Notre Dame in 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 two weeks. Um, as I've continued to go out and stay focused on this this core audience of like raising the financial literacy of the military community, um, I've learned. I've seen more and more evidence that that is true, that mm-hmm. there is this community of supporters out there, this Patriot affinity market, whatever whatever you want to call it, mm-hmm. um, uh, that is really, really keenly interested in investing their dollars on places that support the military. The evidence I have is uh, – you know, one of the best anecdotal pieces of evidence I have is I was on uh, – my friend Carl Higby, who I served with in the SEAL teams um, – he is a, a morning host, morning weekend host on Newsmax, mm-hmm. um, and uh, so I I told Carl like, hey, there's this issue, inflation is really eating into military salaries, pay decrease. Um, you know, we've we've started this this platform uh, to to help military people with their financial future. Interested in talking about it? He said, yep, please come on. So uh, Sunday morning, I got I was in California at the time, so like 4:30 a.m. hit, you know, 4:30 a.m. in. At 4.30 a.m., late August Sunday, TV hit on Newsmax, mm-hmm. right? Uh, and I'm talking about Guild. And uh, the, uh, not only did we get, you know, like 100 people were- signing up within five minutes mm-hmm. of the segment, we had a series of people who had actually transferred their portfolios over from Robinhood to us, right? Mm-hmm. Now, I think partially Robinhood is its own story. Mm-hmm. You know, they certainly were— innovative in the space but you know they're it's been pretty rocky for them yep. now if you look at revenue and stock and and all that stuff and so and i think there's still a little bit of a trust hangover in the market but literally we got emails that morning from sunday morning late august you know on newsmax saying like hey please transfer my portfolio from x company to you guys i want to invest on a platform that's more aligned with my values yep and this was like the waterboarding, like you do yep. all these pieces yes, and yeah. then every once in a while something actually comes true. And we had been sort of like projecting this in our mind mm-hmm. for a long time that, you know, non-military people, just supporters of the military community mm-hmm. um, would would want to in, invest on Guild simply mm-hmm. for for this fact. And then that email literally this morning, like mm-hmm. or literally that same morning, you know, several of those, like, please Please transfer. We want a company more aligned with our values, yeah. and that 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 for us
0: was a, a huge win. Yeah, I mean, look, it it it, uh, it makes sense, and I think also um, it, it goes back to uh, uh, courage is contagious. I, I think there's a whole group of people in the United States who uh, they feel kind of uh, weird about uh, voicing uh, support for various causes, uh, but then when they see their neighbor or their friend or somebody they follow on social media or whatever say, hey, I care about this stuff, and and I'm willing to take action, even if it's just. Trans- transferring my assets to a platform if i'm going out in the community doing something then all of a sudden it's like uh, oh cool i got air cover like yeah i care about that too actually and, and you start to see that build over time
1: yeah and i think there's like this easy sand trap that we could get caught in mm-hmm. on this is that there's this political ideology or political lens mm-hmm. like you know um because everything's become so polarized mm-hmm. like um we could think that like oh that's just right-wing stuff right like the anecdote that i just told you this, you know, from Newsmax, right? Mm-hmm. Which like leans right, you mm-hmm. know, as, as a news institution or whatever. Um, and like, but like really what I think that this is as apolitical as it gets. Mm-hmm. And I think it's the same as we thought about in Iraq or Afghanistan when we were going to kick in a door. Mm-hmm. We didn't ask if the person... In front or behind us. You're Republican or you're Democrat.
0: Who are you voting for? Yeah, who are you voting for?
1: <laughs> go, go, go! Clear, clear, clear! Yeah. Right? No, like, and I think one of one of the best parts of the military and why we still largely enjoy like you know public support and institutional support as as an organization um, is because we have been able for the most part, to operate independent of that political Mm -hmm. lens. Like the independence of the U.S. military um, that we serve, whoever the commander-in-chief is at the time, is extraordinarily important. We've tried to bring that ethos to the guild platform. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, supporting the military is not a political act. It's not an ideological Mm -hmm. act, right? It doesn't mean that you're partisan in any way, shape, or form, right? I, You know, we were talking about, you know, Al Gore's innovation earlier today, mm-hmm. you know, coupled with uh, you know my appearance on Carl Higbie's Newsmax yeah. segment, there those are opposite sides of the political well, spectrum.
0: Well, I always uh, joke that uh, uh, most people forget uh, a Republican or a Democrat every four to eight years uh, becomes the leader of the military, right? Like, like right now, like exactly. this Democrat used to be Republican, right. and like it'll keep switching. And so, the, if the leader uh, uh, has a different political ideology uh, back and forth, like that's probably a pretty good thing. Yeah, and I and. You know, this might be a
1: bridge too far or whatever, mm-hmm. but I, I there are all of these like extraordinary lessons that I think you and I have tried to extrapolate from our military experience mm-hmm. to bring to the civilian world. I think some of the popularity of uh, you know, of, of Jocko and some of these uh Stan McChrystal mm-hmm. other like sort of storied military leaders um, who are now giving, you know, corporate speeches and stuff like that is that 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 there is wisdom that is requisite mm-hmm. in the military mm-hmm. that adds value mm-hmm. to our country and our Our culture and i think this is one of those examples the non-partisan nature of the military if we can extrapolate that out writ large to society um i think we'll all i think we'll all be
0: better served
1: and uh that's certainly the ethos that we've tried to live at via guild
0: yeah i i I love the idea and i think a lot of people who watch this will uh will love it as well where can we send people if they want to uh, download the app or participate
1: yeah uh iPhone App Store uh, look up Guild Financial and come right up download the app um, the uh, and same with Android all all of the platforms our website guild.financial um and yeah we 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 love we love having, you know, new people on board. It's great. We're building the community. If you're watching community. this yeah. or listening <laughs> That's and you like the plug. military, yeah.
0: <laughs> Kaj is being nice. Yeah. <laughs> Go download the app. Uh, where can we send people to find you on the internet if they uh, want to follow along? You,
1: you know, I have, I have my own website, uh, kajlarson.com. It's got a repository of my, my media work and, and stuff on there as well. Uh, I, I do the Gram. I love the Gram at Kaj Larson. uh, Imagine
0: if Instagram was out while you were a SEAL. Oh my God. God. (laughs) And
1: we like I feel like we barely like like we couldn't even take photos in those days, you know. So guys have all like, you know, like the the platoon guys these days, they got all these glamour shots, right? Yeah, like yeah, us, yeah. We, we weren't even allowed to have cameras, you know? So I, I don't even have that like great stash of like Kaj
0: team guy photos. Yeah, I think I have like maybe 12 or 15 photos uh, from but, when I was in Iraq. But like actual rocked. photos, right? Well, well yeah. so, but here was the thing is uh, I was there 0809, And so like when I got back, Facebook was just now like breaking out of like the, uh, uh, the college world. And uh, I remember feeling like a freaking badass that I got to upload some photos on Facebook. And then I, I like now I'm like, I have no clue what where, where photos are, any of this stuff. But like there's those 10 photos on there Facebook. You got them. You got them. <laughs> right? Yeah. yeah. So like you have physical photos, which I think is, for, I mean, for decades, that's what people had. Totally, totally. Yeah. And I I actually do still have like a like a shoebox.
1: It's like a cliche, but yeah. a shoebox of like photos from you know buds and you know my first SEAL team and and all that stuff. But yeah, no. But I, I love the gram. I'm big on the gram. You know, I'm pretty responsive for the most part. Like if people you know DM me or you can always contact me through my website. My my trigger warning is that most of my my gram photos you know are like frogman Friday or like yeah. me spearfishing or <laughs> like you know there's there's. <laughs> It's, it's almost always, it's almost all underwater. Yeah, yeah, know? yeah.
0: Well, well, that's, that's, uh, uh, now we have, uh, the technology where you can have a cameraman go with you, right? And take oh, the totally, photos. <laughs> totally. God, I needed, I needed those guys in the teams. You yeah. Know? <laughs> can you imagine at, uh, at Bud's to have, uh, have cameraman? Like, I, I, I do think a lot about, uh, like the vlogging culture. Like, you see all these kids on, on, uh, YouTube and stuff. Like, imagine when somebody starts to go into the SEAL teams, be like, yeah, yeah I'll, I'll come, but, uh, my cameraman is, the fuck out of here <laughs> Don't, that, it's gonna happen it's gonna happen to do it it's a new, it's a new yeah. navy I, I i actually think it's probably one of the best things the uh navy or army could do right is like uh go find one of these like influencer people who has somewhat of a big audience and say to them like hey you want to go through buds and again the overlap of people who have an audience on the internet and want to go through buds is like probably not that big but you could probably find one person and say hey here's what we're gonna do is come out and do it it's a recruiting video yeah,
1: I mean, right. they, and maybe
0: it's basic training and not buds yeah. or whatever, but like you could figure something out. Where I mean, they did this essentially, right? They
1: had this documentary about class two, three, four on Discovery Channel and mm. they followed cameras like all through and I've gone back and, and watched it. Some of those dudes actually rolled into my class. They got mm. hurt or whatever um, and, I've, and I've watched it and it, it's good. Like that's, that's the best part to bring this whole thing full circle. Mm -hmm. Like there's no secret to buds, right? There's no like, all the secret stuff happens after buds. Yeah. yeah, yeah. (laughs) And you graduate buds. You don't even know that much about being a seal. You do a lot of push-ups, right? But it's all right there in plain sight. You know, you're going to go to buds. You're going to be in the water. You're going to lift some logs, right? You're going to run around with a boat on your head.
0: Like no mystery, no steroids required, (laughs) right? Just be tough and don't quit. The the last thing I'll say is uh, we had a, a gold bar lieutenant show up uh, in Iraq and uh, E seven platoon leader. Uh, I just clears day. We'll never forget this moment. Uh, he said something, and the E seven said to me, "Goes, hey man, in here you're the boss. Out there I'm the boss." Yeah, and I remember being like. There's levels to this shit, right? <laughs> And and I think it is. It's like, look, there's the training is obviously very important, but then there's the real world application of this stuff. And uh, the Navy SEALs are some of the best in the world at both. Well, thanks, man, and thanks for being such a advocate of the
1: the military veterans community that we that we care so much about. And being one of these guys, like like our buddy Jack Carr, who has has found his footing, you know, in the in the civilian sector. Now it's now it's our job to like lift our military brethren up with us.
0: Absolutely. Thank you so much for your time. Thanks. Thanks so much for listening to today's episode. I really hope you enjoyed this one. Make sure you're subscribed on Apple, Spotify, or your favorite podcast player. And if you're looking to transition into a brand new job in the Bitcoin or crypto industry, we've got you covered. Head over to thecryptoacademy.io. My team and I have been working with the top HR teams in the industry to develop an intensive three-week training program with over 50 live events. We teach you exactly what you need to know to break into the industry, including live interview prep and resume review. Our students have been hired at over 75 of the world's best Bitcoin and crypto companies. Go to thecryptoacademy.io to learn more. Again, that's thecryptoacademy.io. If you enjoyed today's episode, make sure you share it with your friends and I'll see you all for the next episode.